Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, June 11th, we are wrapping up our study of the Book of Romans with Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 27. St. Paul brings this glorious epistle to a close. He warns concerning divisive teachers and their false doctrine. He gives final greetings from his companions and fellow workers, and he ends with an exalted doxology of praise to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Vandercook. Pastor Vandercook serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Uh, Good to be with you again. As we get started, Pastor Vandercook, there's not really a ton of context to talk about in terms of the argument that Paul is carrying forward, but we are again, as we were yesterday, in the conclusion of Paul's epistle to the Romans. This is a section that we often see in his epistles, something similar to what we're reading. And so feel free to comment on Paul's conclusions, what he often does, what he does here. And also, it's one of those sections, we talked a little bit about this yesterday, where when we're reading through the New Testament, we might be tempted to skip over a section like this, because there's going to be names that we don't recognize, maybe can't pronounce. There's going to be situations that maybe we just don't know what the background is, and so we think, well, we'll just run through that quickly. What do we miss when we do something like that? So give us some introductory material with those questions. Yeah, sure. You know, I think we come across those all over the scriptures. Uh, You know, in the Old Testament, we run into them with uh, uh, genealogy, genealogy, genealogical lists that uh, you know, and, and I know that whenever I'm teaching Bible classes and so forth, and I'm having uh, maybe having other people read, they'll even kind of gloss over and they'll just say, "Oh, you know, it's just a bunch of names here or something like that," and they'll just kind of skip it. Um, you know, same thing. We get to like the genealogy of Jesus and the Gospels too, that we see all this list of names, and it's it's uh, it's daunting to look at it. Um, but uh, we do miss some things in there sometimes because uh, the names help give us uh, first of all some context. Um, they'll they'll place often what we're reading into a historical context because we'll uh, encounter these names, uh, perhaps in the case of at least one we're going to encounter, one that actually appears in uh, in, in some archaeological discoveries, uh, but also uh, we miss where these names might pop up in other places in Scripture sometimes too, um, and so you know for that reason I think I think just for the general historical context sometimes we miss out on those things. Uh, if we skip over them, um, uh, so and, and that can provide a neat insight into into what's going on both in in Paul's life or what has happened in Paul's life in this case, uh, and who's with him right now and where is he going and where is he writing all these things from. Right. I mean, a section like this, and I think it's going to be particularly true for the text we're going to look at today, can help us find those connections, say, with the Book of Acts, and and some of the information that we've got here is what helps us 
get a pretty good idea of when Paul wrote this letter, where he was when he wrote this letter, just by these names that he mentions and and doing some connecting the dots. It's not always perfect. We can't always say with exact certainty, but a lot of the information that we're going to encounter here today helps give that context that you're talking about. It makes the epistle to the Romans more than just a, a theological treatise, a textbook written for someone somewhere out there, but it's it's written to a particular people in a particular place, written by a particular person from a particular place in a situation. It really, it just adds a bit of, of color to what otherwise, I'd, I'd hesitate to say this about the letter to the Romans, but what could become just sort of a, a black and white letter with no feeling. Names like this help give that color, that background to it that I, th- I think help us read it with more joy. Maybe that's the best way to say it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. So what, I mean, what else in terms of just conclusion, what are we going to encounter here? What have we seen so far in the conclusion that is typical of Paul, maybe some unique things as we start to to think about the particular text we've got today? Yeah, sure. We, you know, uh, you know, you discussed yesterday the first uh, 16 verses of this. Uh, I assume that's what y'all talked about yesterday was the first 16 verses of the of this chapter, and and there you get you know kind of typical stuff. You know, Paul sending his greetings or uh, giving instructions to greet certain people uh, that he knows are there in Rome, uh, and then you get to to verse 16, which is right before the material we're really covering today, uh, and he says, "Greet one another with with a holy kiss." And all the churches of Christ greet you. Uh, so now we've turned the attention from uh, from giving instructions from Paul to greet people there, and now he's saying these are the people that greet you. And then it almost uh, it really is kind of an abrupt. It seems anyway to be an abrupt insertion here of uh, we get into this um, uh, this this warning against those who cause divisions and create obstacles. This, this warning against false teaching that crops up all of a sudden, and then Paul goes back to once again um, greetings. Uh, but again, it's greetings that go from people to those in Rome, uh, uh, not the other way around. So, um, so on the one hand, it's very typical of Paul to give these greetings at the end of his letters, both both greeting people. Um, there at the church that he's writing to, or the group of people, or the individual that he's writing to, or, you know, saying, I, along with the people that are with me, send my greetings to you. Uh, what's not as typical is the amount of uh, the amount of space or the amount of warning that, that Paul gives here against uh, divisions and false doctrine in general. Hmm. Let's go ahead and read the text and then come back to that as to how this larger warning might fit into this particular spot. So we're in in Romans chapter 16, beginning at verse 17. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. 
I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. That is the text for today, the close to the letter to the Romans, Romans 16, verses 17 through 27. So, Pastor Vandercook, Paul, again, it's, it's maybe a bit abrupt. Verse 16, all the churches of Christ greet you. Those greetings from Paul and his companions to the Romans continue in verse 21, and you get this section here in verses 17 through 20 that includes this warning against false teaching. And it maybe seems a bit abrupt. A bit abrupt. It's a bit longer than we see in some places. How how does I mean? What's the move that Paul is making here, from that greeting from all the churches to talk about watching out for those who are dividing? Yeah, it's so abrupt. In fact, that uh, it it lets it's led some liberal scholars to even suggest that hey, maybe this isn't even authentic, and maybe we should just skip over it. Uh, and you can see how you could you could take those verses out and you could uh, continue on twenty one. The problem with doing that is that there's there's just no textual evidence for it at all, uh, and so there's there's really no way that we can do that without doing violence to the text that's been handed down to us. Right. I mean, so so well, keep going, keep going, Pastor Vandekirk. Yeah. So uh, so it's it's you know again we're we're dealing here with a letter um, that doesn't really deal with the issue of false teachings at all either. Uh, but Paul encounters plenty of them over the course of his ministry. Uh, and so what it seems to be is that Paul is warning the Romans for something that could come at them later and trying to prepare them for that and trying to uh, urge them to stay away from this stuff. Is there, do you, and this is maybe, you're, you're right, the matter of false teaching has not been explicitly in view, especially when you compare it to other epistles of Paul, particularly Galatians stands out, as there's definitely a false teaching that's happening in Galatia, and Paul writes to them to speak against that false teaching, to remind them of the truth. Colossians, I can think of similar sections in the letter to the Colossians, where where you, you can see there's a false teaching going on, and a good chunk of the epistle is dedicated to speaking against that particular false teaching. That's not been quite as evident, or maybe even evident at all within this epistle to the Romans. The closest that I can think of, having read through it now, is where Paul occasionally—well, not occasionally, it happens on several occasions—he'll make mention of a particular argument that he's anticipating will be spoken against what he has just laid out. So, for example, in Romans chapter 6, Paul says, "...shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound?" And he answers very strongly, "...by no means." So he's speaking against some false teaching that maybe he's encountered elsewhere— or maybe he's just anticipating that argument. So there is a false teaching in the background, but it's not been what drives the letter 
to the Romans, not not like several of his other epistles. Right. Is there anything particular that Paul had in mind? Is this just a, a general thing? What, what what do we make of that? Well, I think if you consider the fact that he's writing this letter from Corinth, uh, for example, you know that's that's the setting for where he's writing from, and we'll we'll come to that when we get to a few of the uh, the people that are sending their greetings at the end. Uh, you know that that Paul is writing this from Corinth, and. One of the big issues that come, comes up at the church at, at Corinth is the issue of division, um, and Paul addresses that very explicitly there. So, you know, this is kind of the way maybe I picture it. I don't know if this is fair or accurate or whether it's, uh, you know, it, it's, um, uh, it's helpful or not, but, you know, right after Paul says in verse 16, you know, he says, all the churches of Christ greet you. I could see that coming up in my head. Oh yeah, I remember you know what I've dealt with over here before. By the way, you guys and, and you know it's like oh yeah, I forgot that I need to tell you about this. You know you need to avoid this type of thing. And in particular, as he's writing from Corinth, that might be coming into his head immediately. Of course, this is speculation, you know, but it could be that he's saying you know I'm dealing with all this division here in Corinth. I'm writing to this church, these these people at Rome, the Christians at Rome. I need to I need to tell them, look, you got to watch out for the stuff that's going to cause divisions among you because. Um, that's been that's been rampant here at, at Corinth, and I don't want that to happen to you guys at Rome. I want you to run away from this stuff. You know, flee from these teachers that would lead you into false teaching and divisions. Hmm. I, you know, yeah, that there's a, probably speculation there, but I do think it seems plausible enough that that might be going through Paul's mind. And again, that that adds that color to this this epistle, as we were saying earlier. So, but but even even if not. Even if there's not a particular false teaching that he's got in mind from where he's writing in Corinth, or if there's nothing particularly in Rome that he's terribly concerned about, he still takes the time to warn against false teachers. And I think, well, there's there's several things I think we can talk about here, Pastor Vandercook, that he, he does warn against those who cause divisions— not only the division itself. So he's got both the false teacher and the false teaching in mind. I think that's something that we can talk about. Maybe that's secondary. Why Why is it that Paul is concerned about, not just here, like why does he put it here, but why, why is there a concern for false teaching from Paul? Well, false teaching causes division. Uh, you know, false, te- you know, we, we don't, Conflict is not something that—I don't think that anybody has ever liked conflict in the world. We always want to try and avoid it, and the easiest way to avoid conflict is to pretend that whatever separates us from somebody else doesn't exist. Uh, and so, you know, the temptation always when it comes to false teaching—and this is this was true, I'm sure—well, it was true in Corinth, uh, and it's—you uh, know, I know we're not talking about Corinthians, but it was true at Corinth, but it's true in our church today, too, that— the, the temptation is always to ignore the things that separate us, to ignore the divisions that exist, the, the differences between us and other Christians, uh, and to ignore them because we always the, the mantra is always, you know, we agree to disagree or something like that, which is basically, hey, let's just ignore the facts, like ignoring the elephant in the room, you know, throwing all these metaphors around. But, uh, uh, you know, we're going to... Uh, we're going to ignore this because we don't want to focus on the things that uh, divide us. We want to focus on the things that unite us. Um, but the problem is that always lurking in the background, 
those are are those divisions. They're always going to be there, and every time they rear their ugly head, they're going to cause more and more problems than they did the, the time before because these things fester within us uh, to the point where. Uh, then when we finally do address it, it's almost too late, and, and we and, and it makes the division that much more difficult to restore. And so what Paul wants us to do is actually go back to the Word of God and say, not not agree to disagree on this, because quite often we've got opposing positions, and we're trying to say these two things are true at the same time, and that can't be the case. Instead, what he wants us to do is he wants us to, uh, together with our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, sit down and look at the Word and say, what does the word say? And actually come to a conclusion based on that. Um, and then, then you eliminate the division because there's no room for division whenever the, the word of God is uh, clearly speaking to us. Hmm. Right. The word of God creates unity, where d- division is created by the false teaching, which I think is a, an important—the way that you laid that out is a, an important thing, because so often it seems that those who are espousing false teaching— come along to those who want to hold on to what the Word of God clearly says, and they will accuse those of speaking the Word of God clearly and saying, this is what it says and nothing else. Those who are teaching falsely want to come along and tell the true teacher, you're causing division. Why why are you wanting to hold on to it? You're causing division by saying this. But in fact, it's Paul's putting it the exact opposite. The Word of God in its truth, the doctrine that he's he says the doctrine you've been taught, that's what creates the unity. It's the false teaching, and those who would peddle that false teaching, that's where the division is coming from. And it's important to keep right. that in mind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, Pastor Vandercook, one as, as you were talking about this matter of, you know, one of the easiest ways to avoid conflict is just to ignore it. And I think that's very true. And, and as you were talking about that, this unity that is to exist within the Christian Church, Paul has talked about that previously in the letter to the Romans, though not in a matter concerning false doctrine or true doctrine. In chapter 14, and the first part of 15, Paul talked about the unity of the Christian Church when it came to the strong in faith and the weak in faith— living together, and and how do they show love to one another? How do they welcome each other within the Christian church? And if I can, just, just real quick, to read, for example, Romans 14, verse 1, Paul said then, he said, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So so there's, I, I guess, and I think we talked about this when we looked at chapters 14 and the first part of 15, but, but what's the difference there in chapter 14, where Paul says, don't quarrel over opinions, and and there's this, it's not compromise, it's, it's love that is exercised between the weak and the strong, recognizing that they're brothers in Christ. But what's, what's the difference there where, where Paul isn't saying, avoid those people who are weak in faith? He says, don't quarrel over opinions. Here he says, avoid these people Watch out for them; they're causing division. What's the difference between these two two sections in Romans? Well, when he's talking about those, uh, you know, he's talking about the, um, uh, you know, the uh, those who are weak in the faith and so forth, and quarreling over opinions. Again, we're not talking about things where the Word of God is clearly speaking there. Um, 
where we're talking, what we're talking about here is where the Word of God is clearly speaking. Uh, and so those are the those are the those are the ones where we need to draw the line and say, you know, no, we can't we can't have uh, we can't have a difference in this regard. We can't say that this is true and this is true because the Word of God clearly states this. Where you have the um, you know the weaker the weaker um, uh, the weak in faith that he refers to there, or there he's talking about like in verse fourteen, verse five, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Uh, you know, it's the idea of uh, you know, for example, we. Um, I, I think I often talk about this whenever I'm, I'm talking about the third commandment with catechumens, and we we talk about you know remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You know, in the Old Testament, there was always this prohibition against working on on the specifically the Sabbath day on the on the uh, seventh day of the week, and uh, you know, of course, now we in our Christian freedom we recognize the fact that we need to gladly hear and learn the Word of God, uh, but it does not matter which day we do that on as much as the fact that we actually do it, um, that we actually do uh, gladly hear and learn uh, the Word of God. Uh, and so, you know, chapter 14 was talking about things that are in the realm of Christian freedom, um, where certainly there are times whenever we practice things a certain way for the purpose of good order, for the sake of good order, uh, but we also recognize the fact that there are uh, freedom in these things. When we get to here in chapter 16, here we're not talking about things that are in the realm of Christian freedom. We're talking about things that are uh, clearly contrary to what Paul has taught them, uh, contrary to the central uh, doctrines of the Church. Um, does that does that make sense? Is that kind of what you were getting at? Yes, very much so. The, the difference, essentially, between, as it's translated in the ESV, the opinions of chapter 14 and the doctrine that's here, that here we're talking about, Paul is specifically talking about what has been clearly revealed in the Word of God, that there is no such thing as an opinion when it comes to that. Rather, it is what God has said, this is what we say. And when we don't say it, when we fail to confess, to speak back to God what he has spoken to us, that's when divisions come up. And and that's when Paul gives this warning, is to those who are going against what is very clearly spoken in the Word of God. That false teaching causes divisions. Paul also says it creates obstacles. So so we've got a, a division. What about this? What are the obstacles that are being created? What's the image there? Well, yeah, uh, obstacles. You know, in other words, you know, we're we're going to create some type of impediment to to gaining a full understanding of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Uh, you know, so um, I'm I'm trying to think of of a good just example off the top of my head. Well, I mean, I would say that you know, for example, um, the the issue of infant baptism. Take that. Um, if we deny infant baptism, we're not just denying infant baptism, but we're creating an obstacle to an understanding by sal- of salvation by grace through faith, uh, because now we've turned um, we've turned the understanding of um, how God saves us into something that I am doing, into an intellectual ascent or something like that, rather than uh, how we should correctly understand it as. You know, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel. You know, so we have, uh, we, we've 
we've created an obstacle to a proper understanding of how uh, God works for our salvation by creating this this false teaching of a denial of infant baptism. Right, an, an obstacle or sometimes a, a stumbling block. I think the the Greek word there is it's a skandalon, a, a scandal, something that would that would actually lead a person away from the true faith, away from to to go back to the very beginning of Romans, that would lead a person away to the gospel, which is the power of salvation, to give the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and and false teaching prevents a person from receiving that. And I, I think one of the, as uh, just reflecting on, on our conversation so far, thinking that there's, there's perhaps no particular false teaching that is in view here by Paul, is just a reminder that all false doctrine is bad. <laughs> Certain, yeah. Certainly, I mean, and, and we would we would recognize that that some false doctrine does hurt more than others. For example, a denial of infant baptism hurts more than some other false doctrine. But but speaking fully, uh, false doctrine is bad. When when God has said something, we want to say the same thing. It's it's never the matter of of teaching doctrine should never be reduced to well, how much do I have to get right? And I can I can miss the other part. We certainly will recognize that there's going to be parts of God's word that we may not be able to fully wrap our minds around or may not fully understand. But the goal should always be to speak it truly and never to say, "Well, what can I get away with?" Yeah, that's almost like the uh, that, that kind of reminds me of the fair. It's like a Pharisaical approach to the Word of God. You know that uh, what is the bare minimum I can do and still be counted as as right? You know, <laughs> yeah. Right. So, Pastor Vandercook, with just just about a minute here before we take our break, real briefly, Paul Paul says to watch out for the ones causing division. He doesn't just warn against false teaching, but he warns against the false teacher. And I was I was reflecting on that. And there's there's a saying out there, and I it's I don't know that it's always helpful that goes something like this: Christians are to hate the sin, but love the sinner. And uh, there's probably some truth to that, but there's also maybe a misleading way of, of thinking about that. Uh, Paul says to watch out for the false teacher, not just the false teaching. How, how does that work? I mean, you earlier talked about sitting down with people and, and saying, well, what does the Word of God say? And yet Paul says, avoid the false teacher. We maybe have, we're going to have to pick this up on the other side of the break, too, but just give us a taste. Well, you know, I would, I think that uh, I think we can certainly go to, you know, like um, uh, in Matthew, was it in Matthew 14 where Jesus uh, warns against false teachers, or Matthew 7, where he warns against false teachers, and and his his thing there is that you know a good tree bears good fruit. Uh, don't go to a bad tree expecting bad fruit. I'm paraphrasing heavily there, but uh, you know that's that it, that really is a thing. If we go to a false teacher expecting them to bear good fruit. Uh, we're going to be disappointed. Mm-hmm. We'll pick that more up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. Looking at the end of the Epistle to the Romans. Take a short break, but be right back. Please stick around. Mm-hmm. 
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, June 11th, and we are looking at the end of Paul's epistle to the Romans, Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 27. We got Pastor David Vandercook with us. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, prior to the break, we were talking through verse 17 in this matter of divisions, false teacher teaching, and then the false teachers. And we were we were starting to talk a little bit about that matter of false teachers, false teaching. And, and as we were visiting over the break, you also brought out that one of the categories is also the falsely taught, those who've been deceived by the false teaching. Help us to, to draw some distinctions in these categories so that we can do what Paul actually says here, avoid them. Yeah, we, we do. it's an important distinction to make between the falsely, the false teacher and the falsely taught. Uh, and most of the people that we're going to encounter on a day-to-day basis and, uh, are going to be the falsely taught, not the false teacher. Not always, but that's usually going to be the case. Uh, you know, you handle these two categories of people very differently. Um, the falsely taught, uh, you want to be particularly gentle with them uh, because uh, they they were not the ones that created this doctrine, this false teaching. Uh, they simply were the ones that were taught that false teaching. And so with those people, we need to kind of be patient and patiently lead them through the Word of God, uh, discuss the Word of God with them, and uh, and try and um, uh, bring them away from their false teaching and bring them to the truth of what's found in the Word of God. Um, Paul here, though, is really warning against the false teacher himself. Uh, you know, and as I, as I kind of alluded to in, in uh, Matthew 7, uh, Jesus uh, warns us of false prophets there as well, and Paul and uh, Paul along those same lines is telling us, "Hey, you need to you need to watch out for these false teachers. Uh, false teachers, um, you know them by their fruits. Uh, you compare what they teach to the Word of God, and if they teach something that's that is contrary to the Word of God, we need to stay far, far away from it. You know, uh, we should not expect a, a false teacher uh, to suddenly." Um, uh, flip on a switch and all of a sudden not be a false teacher anymore. Now they might, and God be praised if they do. But um, but in the meantime, we should avoid them. Uh, we should avoid the false teacher. Uh, and so that you know, in in practical terms, that's going to mean uh, you know we need to watch what it is that goes into our ears uh, as far as the uh, the material that we listen to, the things that go into our eyes, the things that we read, and so forth as well, uh, that would lead us again away from. Uh, the truth of what God's Word has. Hmm. I, I, th- I find that distinction between the falsely taught and the false teacher, as you laid it out, to be very helpful, especially practically speaking, in the way that we, we address other people in to prevent us from just jumping on a person right away when we hear 
something false. I, I, I know as a pastor, it's very easy for me to do that. I hear someone say something that I, I recognize is not true according to God's word, and, and my instinct is to just jump on it and, and say, no, 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 no. But to recognize that this difference between the false teacher and the falsely taught and to, to treat the falsely taught with gentleness and to guide toward the truth, I think is, is just a very helpful way of looking at it. And then at the same time, to also recognize that when a person is wrapped up in false teaching and continues, and, and here I speak of the false teacher, that they are actively espousing things that are not scriptural, and they've been warned about it by a by a fellow by a faithful pastor or another fellow Christian, that there is a duty of the faithful Christian to avoid that false teaching because false teaching hurts, and we need to be clear about that. That what goes into our ears does affect us, and we need to take great care to avoid that false teaching. And then on the other hand, to to hear regularly faithful teaching. So on a very practical level, when you're in a new place you're not sure what church you're going to attend, seek out a faithful Lutheran congregation with a faithful Lutheran pastor. Listen to that pastor. Test what he says according to the Word of God. Talk to that pastor. Engage him when you have questions. And, and I mean, I think that's the maybe the, the positive side of what Paul is saying here in terms of avoiding the false teachers. Now, he, he does continue on in verse 18 to talk more about these false teachers, and I think gives us a bit of a way of of identifying where we're talking to a false teacher rather than, say, a falsely taught. What does Paul say about these false teachers in verse 18? Yeah, he, he says that they um, they don't serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Uh, so their concern is not uh, for Christ and his word or to the flock which he's been entrusted with, but rather uh, they're concerned with their own appetites. Uh, you know, so Appetite here, of course, you know, directly we think of food, but uh, here in general, it's just going to be, how am I going to serve myself in this whole thing? Uh, and the marks of the false teacher also, you notice there, it's, it's one that's that's a smooth talker. It says they, they talk smoothly. Uh, in fact, as I was looking at this earlier, I did a little bit of uh, uh, looking at the, at the Greek earlier, this word for smooth talking is the only place in the whole uh, New Testament where that word occurs. Um, that you have this this smooth talk and this flattery, uh, and that again, um, you know, I know I keep jumping back to Matthew seven, uh, but I mean that's 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 what Jesus says about the false teachers. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Uh, you know, kind of again uh, building off what you were saying earlier, uh, when it is that we perhaps come into a new uh, situation when we're looking for a um, a church to attend, let's say, or something like that. The first questions we often ask are unfortunately some are unfortunately the wrong questions, you know, because we look at well, you know, what do, do I like the uh, uh, do I like the personality of the pastor or uh, does this church have all the, uh, the 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 creaturely comforts that I like uh, versus uh, is this actually the word of God that I'm hearing or not, mm-hmm. you know? So we have those temptations in us always to uh, to seek uh, those, those comforts. Uh, and, you know, the, the false teacher is going to give us those comforts with the smooth talk and the flattery and so forth. Mm. Yeah, I, when, I, when we welcome new members here at Grace, I, I visit with them ahead of time after they've gone through the adult instruction class, and I, I always, always remind them that there's probably a variety of reasons that they came to Grace in the first place. And it, it might have been a family connection, it, it might have been 
some event that we were having. It could be any number of reasons that they came here in the first place. But the reason that they should stay is because they've heard the word of God here, not because they like the pastor, not because the people are friendly. Hope, hopefully those things are true. Hopefully you do like your pastor. Hopefully yeah. the people in the church are friendly. But the reason to, to join a congregation and to stay at a congregation is because that congregation is preaching the word of God faithfully. And, and even if your, your pastor's personality isn't particularly friendly, or, or the people there are perhaps a bit colder than you'd like, if you're hearing the word of God preached faithfully, that's something to rejoice over. Now, none of that is an excuse for, for a, a pastor or a congregation to, to be unhospitable, but, but the word of God and the preaching of the truth— this is what this is what counts, and and that's what Paul's really driving home here for the Roman Christians at the at the end of his letter. So Pastor Vandercook then, as, as and Paul Paul here in in verse nineteen, he he commends them, he reminds them of of their obedience. It's known to all. He rejoices over them. It almost sounds a bit like flattery, but it's it's not. It's not flattery. He's just being truthful about their faith. But then he he says, don't. At least the way that I, I I read verse nineteen it says, "Don't become proud in that. Remain wise to what is good, innocent to what is evil." That reminds me of of something you've been bringing up Matthew seven. I think it's Matthew ten where Jesus uses a similar phrase. What does this mean for the the Roman Christians to be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil? Well, be wise to what is good. That is, no no good and uh, and avoid the evil. Uh, you know, it, um, uh, and, and then that makes me think of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from, uh, Genesis three, perhaps that, you know, you had Adam and Eve who knew good, um, uh, and knew only good, but then they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then, uh, that all changed, of course. Um, the, so he, he wants them to be wise to what is good, know what is good, know what is right. Uh, and to be innocent as to what is, to, what is evil, uh, you know, avoid that. Um, uh, avoid avoid the evil things. And of course, that ties into what we were just talking about with the uh, the false teaching or the false teachers is that we avoid uh, the evil that they teach, the the stumbling blocks and so forth that they place in front of us, uh, and we avoid those things. So to be innocent of it uh, means that uh, we're we're avoiding it. Uh, we're avoiding that which is evil. I I didn't really think about the connection to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But that does make a lot of sense that there would be uh, perhaps a bit of reference there, because in verse 20, it seems that there's a much clearer reference to Genesis chapter 3, when Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Yeah, well, yeah, because obviously, and I think that's obviously uh, Paul alluding to um, uh, God speaking to Eve uh, and giving the promise, uh, the first gospel, to her that her offspring— uh, will crush the head of the serpent, uh, and of course that happens at the cross. That um, the you know that, that Jesus crushes the head of the serpent, but it's a little different here because uh, the feet that uh, the Satan is being crushed under is uh, our feet. Uh, you know, or you know, uh, directly says your feet. There, uh, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Uh, so it, it changes the one who's doing the crushing there um, all of a sudden. Now, well, at least. The feet that they're crushed under. Uh, it's not the because God is the one still doing the crushing, but it's under our feet in this case, which is is, is an interesting turn there as well. 
Hmm. I think, uh, as you were talking there, it reminds me of, um, I'm going to have to flip to it, Re- Revelation chapter 12, where you've got that that image of the dragon and the child, and, and Satan is cast out of heaven, and there's a loud voice in heaven that, that talks about that casting out of Satan from, from heaven. Revelation 12 verse 11 says, they have conquered him, referring to the, the saints. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. So it may be, may be a similar thing that, that this victory of Christ over Satan, his crushing, becomes ours as we are in him, connected to his blood through the, the testimony, the word of, of God. I, I, I hadn't really pondered that, but I think maybe there's, is that not, is that a connection we can make? Oh, sure. Yeah, I, I think definitely. And, and it really ties in with the, you know, the whole, um, uh, the whole theme of, of Romans in that uh, Christ's righteousness um, covers us over. Uh, and because we are one with Christ, uh, we are, uh, uh, because we have been buried with him in our baptism, we also uh, rise to him with, in new life. Uh, and that's where that that crushing takes place. You know, it's it's it is certainly an eschatological thing that we're talking about uh, the the end where uh, we will be raised uh, to new life uh, with Christ on the last day, uh, and then we will have Satan crushed under our feet. Mm. Paul ends verse 20 saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like Paul has ended the letter to the Romans more than once, and then he just decided to keep writing. <laughs> it, at the end of chapter 15, he said, the God of peace be with you all. Here he says, now the grace of, of the Lord. Both of those things go together. Of course, he's going to keep writing, but but briefly comment on on this phrase. It's very Pauline. We hear it often. Yeah, it's um yeah, it it does almost sound like a pastor who can't can't figure out when he's done, you know. He <laughs> <laughs> just keeps going. But uh uh yeah, you know, he at the beginning and end of all of Paul's letters, uh he has this uh this this little bit on grace. Uh so yeah, this this is right up his alley. It's always there. Uh we can kind of it's it's uh, you can count on it uh, being part of part of the beginning and ending of his letters, this reference to grace. Verse 21 then picks up again with this matter of greetings, again from Paul and his companions to the Roman Christians. And in verse 21, we get readings from greetings from four people, Timothy, Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater. If I'm not pronouncing that right, you can correct me. Uh, who are these, <laughs> yeah. these four men? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if it's. I, I was pronouncing it in my head Sosa Patter, but I don't know if that's right either. So, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, well, we we don't know a lot about all. I mean, Timothy, we know Timothy. Uh, Timothy is is you know he's the one that Paul uh, set over the church at Ephesus and uh, traveled with Paul uh, from time to time, and you know kind of Paul's protege. So we know who Timothy is, and the one to whom. Uh, Paul's letters to Timothy are addressed. That's pretty clear. Uh, it does address the other three in that verse as kinsmen, uh, which probably has to do with the fact that they're all Jewish, uh, just as Paul is, and that's why he uses that term kinsmen. But uh, other than that, we're we're pretty much up in the air exactly about who these three are. Uh, Lucius, uh, there's a Lucius in Acts 13.1. It could be that Lucius. Uh, there's There's some scholars that think it could be referring to Luke, the evangelist, uh, but we really can't know for sure on that one. Um, 
a little bit more certainty on Jason. I always think it's fun whenever we come across these names, and I'm like, who knew that Jason was a biblical name, you know? Um, But uh, we have Jason, who is probably the same Jason as found in uh, Acts 17. Um, uh, Jason hosted Paul on his second missionary journey, so we hear a little bit about him there, and there's a good chance that it's the same one, but we don't know for sure either on that one. And then... uh, um, uh, Sasapater, or however we're going to pronounce his name, wherever the emphasis is, um, uh, that one is um, uh, is most likely the same person that we find in Acts uh, 20. Um, bottom line is, all three of them are probably traveling with Paul as he's going to Jerusalem. Back in back in chapter 15, um, Paul mentioned how he was taking um, contributions back to Jerusalem. Uh, and so they're probably part of his entourage that's traveling with him uh, back to Jerusalem. And that would make sense in in this uh, in this context to have them three grouped together right there, uh, that they would be uh, traveling that way. So, yeah, there, there's not a lot we can really nail down as far as uh, who these are, aside from Timothy, anyway. Um, but uh, but but certainly we see those names at least appearing uh, elsewhere, uh, especially in the Book of Acts. But uh, uh, but again, it's kind of one of those things where you know a last name would be helpful here, so we could <laughs> so we could really kind of nail it down and say, oh yeah, it's the same guy. But uh, it's it's really hard to get one hundred percent certainty on that. In in twenty two, we hear from a man named Tertius, and this is this is an interesting spot, something that we haven't encountered yet in the letter to the Romans, at least. I Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. I thought I thought Paul wrote the letter. Yeah. Well, uh, apparently Paul's not the one actually putting pen to paper here. What this is, is uh, Tertius is uh, Paul's scribe. Uh, He's the one who's been doing the writing, as Paul has been dictating. And as we look at this, it's quite likely that the the section that we spent a lot of time on earlier, verses 17 through 20, it's, it's quite likely that Paul is the one who's actually putting pen to paper just for those four verses. Um, and he does this in other places as well, Paul does, uh, in other epistles. Uh, you know, and they're, they're, uh, the others are a little are more explicit. First uh, Corinthians 16, uh, Galatians 6, Colossians 4, 2 Th- Thessalonians 3 are all examples of, of where Paul actually says, hey, I'm writing this greeting with my own hand. You know, so he really makes that distinction. This isn't the scribe writing, this is actually me um, uh, putting pen to paper here, but we know nothing about Tertius other than the fact that, uh, he is, um, uh, he's the scribe who is actually writing for Paul. So Paul is still the one writing, uh, but he is, uh, uh, but he's doing it through dictation, at least for most of the book, it appears. And then in verse 23, we encounter the, the last names here in the book of Romans. We've got Gaius, Erastus, and Quartus, which, we can't say a ton about these individuals, just as as it was in verse twenty one. But there is some information here that helps us give us context in terms of where Paul is when he's writing the letter. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Gaius, first of all, he's uh, he is um, most likely the same uh, Gaius or Gaius from uh, Acts chapter twenty, um, and this is somebody that uh, that Paul. Um, uh, baptized, but then also that stayed. He stayed with for three months, um, and we read about that, like I said, in Acts twenty uh, verses two through three. Um, and he stayed with him at Corinth. Uh, so this again is 
uh, is tying the book and the location of Paul writing this letter uh, to the city of Corinth. Uh, and even past that, really, with this, this is really interesting. Erastus, it, his title is actually mentioned, the city treasurer. Uh, the city treasurer of Corinth is mentioned here. And in, in 1929, there was a geological, or not geological, uh, archaeological discovery of, um, of an inscription uh, that was found near the theater in, 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 the, in the ancient ruins of Corinth. Um, and it said this, Arastus, uh, during and in return for his uh, edelship, laid this pavement at his own expense. Uh, you know, so uh, so we see that um, we see that tie-in even with these archaeological discoveries that give us a little bit of um, uh, credence to the biblical witness. Uh, we find we find all kinds of things like that from time to time. But really, a, a neat one there uh, that Erastus was um, apparently. Um, uh, you know, an actual official of the city there at Corinth, uh, and we can actually uh, see his name written um, even in, in archaeological evidence. So that's kind of neat. And then Quartus, we're kind of back to the unknown on him. Um, it says our brother Quartus there, but we we don't know a lot about him either uh, as far as who he is. But, uh, but yeah, those names, uh, again, tie us into um, uh, place the book in history and location for us, which is kind of nice. Yeah, it really, it, again, it, it provides that color. And the fact that, just the fact that we see Erastus being verified, and we would we would believe it even, even if that wasn't there, but just the fact that we see his name verified does lend tons of credibility to even these, these men, Quartus, for example, that we don't know anything else about, that these are actual Christians that Paul lived, knew, worked with, and and they're mentioned here in in the letter to the Romans. What 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 a wonderful thing, uh, Pastor Vandercook. We got got just about seven minutes left, and and just briefly, honestly, I I almost missed this until you pointed it out to me. In most English translations, verse twenty four is nowhere to be found. Briefly, explain that to us. Yeah, I can't remember where it was. I had a um, we use the historic lectionary, the historic one year lectionary at my congregations, and. There is there's one reading every year uh, that um, uh, that has a verse in it that's missing uh, in in most English translations and most modern translations. And I have a couple members of my congregations that will uh, in the in the weeks ahead of in the week ahead of time will look at the readings for the coming Sunday, which I encourage them to do. And they said. Well, Pastor, we tried to find this verse because, and I can't remember which one it was, but it, we tried to find this verse and it's not there. And then on Sunday, you read it, and it was there. Uh, how how is that possible? Um, well, of course, you know what we have is we have um, in our English translations. They are translations from uh, from the Greek manuscripts, and we don't in the case of the uh, in the case of the books of the Bible, we don't have a unified. Um, uh, manuscript that has like the entire book. What we have is we we've had to look at multiple manuscripts, and uh, we've created a consensus by that. Now you know the manuscripts overwhelmingly agree with each other, uh, but we do have these variant readings sometimes where one thing appears in one manuscript and doesn't appear in another. Now if you were to pull out a King James translation, you would find um, Romans sixteen twenty four. It would be in there, and and it reads this way: the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Which sounds very much like the end of the book. Uh, and and in fact, most of the manuscripts that included that verse, that was the end of Romans. 
they did not have the, the, the doxology, which we'll get to in a little bit, verses 25 through 27. It just ended at 24. Um, so uh, so what, what happened there was that over time, uh, you have you have additional discoveries are made of manuscripts that actually predate uh, the ones that we had been using. And so our modern translations all are, are actually based on a greater quantity of manuscripts. And overwhelmingly, the earlier manuscripts did not include um, uh, verse 24. And so that's why most of our English translations skip over 24. Um, so it exists, uh, but uh, uh, but not in our modern translations. Most most people will have a footnote in their Bible that'll that'll include it, uh, but it has that note there. And of course, the the verse numbers were not inspired; uh, those were added to aid our 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 reading and our reference to be able to find things quickly in the Bible rather than uh, just having those things there. So uh, so we simply skip twenty four and we go right to twenty five from there. And in verse 25 through 27, Paul gives a concluding doxology, praise to the one true God. And and within this doxology, there are so many connections to themes that Paul has brought up in the book of Romans. Pastor Vandercook, you've got about three minutes to take us through this doxology that will—what is Paul doing here, and, and how is this tying up the book of Romans as a whole for us? Yeah. Well, it it is it's a, it's it's an excellent conclusion to the book. In particular, if you if you were to it ties into chapter one uh, really well in repeating what Paul was saying in chapter one. Uh, so you see, you know, first of all, the power of God to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Uh, talking about uh, God's power among us, what He's able to do, uh, and He's going to strengthen us. That is, he's going to strengthen us according to the gospel. Uh, That is, he's going to um, uh, reveal the mystery that's been kept secret for long ages. So, you know, you see that that God, who is powerful, he's going to strengthen us through the gospel, through the preaching of Christ, uh, and he's going to bring us into the gospel in this way, because now it's been disclosed through the prophetic writings, and it's been made known to all nations. Uh, beginning with the command of eternal God, so yeah, there's this idea of the gospel that's being that's now being uh, proclaimed to the nations, uh, and the fact that people are being declared righteous for Christ's sake. All of these themes are really wrapped together neatly here by Paul in this doxology, and then he gets down to the end of 26 to bring about the obedience of faith. This is our response to what God has done for us. Not that the obedience of faith is what saves us, but rather that that is the result of what God has done, that it um, that, that we live as his people because and out of response for what he has done for us. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's um, uh, it really is a nice conclusion to the book uh, that really ties in uh, the, the themes of the uh, of the book nicely as we come to the end. Pastor David Vandercook is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumel, Arkansas, helping us this morning with Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 27. Pastor Vandercook, thanks for your time today. Well, happy to do it. 
the righteousness of God is for you. That is the theme of the book of Romans. What you could not do on your own through your works, you could not earn righteousness. God has done freely for you in Christ Jesus, and he gives it to you now through faith. Thanks be to God. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.